Today, I want to focus on the fact that Jesus is God. That's called the deity of Jesus. We were in our, our prep team, and, and one of the young men in our prep team, we kept saying, you know, it's all about the deity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. And he's like, what's deity? <laughs> and I'm like, that's a good, that is a good question. It's the essence that he is actually God. That he's not, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, a messenger from heaven. He, he's not anything less than God himself. And I would say this, that the gospel that we preach around here is the good news of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son into this world to, to live a sinless and perfect life and become a substitution for every sinner's sin substituting his perfection for all of our imperfection, going to the cross, dying on the cross, paying the penalty of our sin, and, and then going into the grave, conquering sin and death, resurrecting from the dead three days later and declaring victory for anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, that's the good news. Anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone. That's, it's a free gift. It's a gift of God's grace to you. But see, this gift is meaningless. And Jesus' life and sacrifice is powerless if he isn't God. If he doesn't actually have the capacity to pull off what he promises he off. This is why when we're baptizing people around here all the time, we love baptizing friends and, and family. And one of the key questions that we're always asking is, do you believe that Jesus is God? Why is that so central? Because otherwise, that practice of going into the water is purposeless. It's meaningless unless Jesus is actually God. And when you go down into that water, it's like you going down into the grave with him. All your sin and shame being washed away, you come up out of the grave a new creation, right? He, he has got the power, the ability, the capacity to actually save you, to make you right with God. If he is not God, he does not have that capacity. Cults have emerged over generations um, around the deity of Jesus. Some of us wrestle trying to uh, wrap our heads around the fact that he's fully God and fully man, and we have a tendency to kind of lean one way or the other, and we like his deity maybe more than we like his humanity or vice versa. Some of us, Jesus is like our homeboy, right? And we're like, yes, he's my best friend. Uh, deity, Lord, in charge, yeah, like I, I kind of like just to hang out with Jesus. I don't like to be told what to do, right? Like, like there's, this, there's this tension, this, this paradox pulls us in both directions, and we want to lean, but the fullness of Jesus is so important that we understand, no, he is fully God. He is, he is deity in his essence, in his character, and in his nature. Cults emerge when you and I make less of this fact. People try to explain away his deity. Mormons, it's a cult that will tell you that Jesus was a man that became a God. And so therefore, you, you humans can become a God as well and get your own planet and do all those things that they, that they preach about, right? Like, none of that's true, but it's man's attempt to try to, try to make sense of the deity of Jesus. This is where a cult... Uh, a false teaching comes from is a human attempt to kind of explain the nature and the character of God. And, and it's so important that we, we don't try to put God in our understanding in our box, but that we really try to understand him for who he is and how he's revealed himself to us. 
As, as short as we might fall, that pursuit is much more pure than trying to make God in our image, amen? That pursuit is a, is a pure pursuit that says, God, I wanna know you, I wanna encounter you, I wanna experience you for who you really are, not for who I make you to be, but for who you really are. That's this conversation today. And I, I'm really excited about it. Let's look at the Christmas story for a second, just to create some backdrop for this. Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, this is verse 26, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a, a messenger, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. That's a really important descriptor there. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said to Mary, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. <laughs> That's a big greeting. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What are you talking about? Why am I so favored? What are you doing here in my house? You're an angel. What is going on, right? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God and you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus and he will be great. Listen to this description of Jesus and will be called, listen to this, the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's all these prophecies about how David's throne would last forever. A descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. He will reign, Jesus will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And when you hear that description, you can't just be like, Jesus is just some cute baby, right? Like he is God. The essence of who he is is the son of the most high. Look at the capitalization right there. The Greek right there is, is this hypistis, this, this most revered, most exalted title of God. That is who Jesus is. It's interesting that he's the son of God, right? And oftentimes this is where people get tripped up as well. Like, well, then since he was born, was he made kind of less than God in that process of being you know, formed in Mary's womb and all of this stuff. And, and, and I would just say it like this, that, that Jesus is God's only begotten son. Begotten is a really kind of old English word that means something super powerful, that God actually beget Jesus. When God made humanity, he created us. Begotten is reserved for a very special one, Jesus alone that he shares all of the deity of God, the Godhead, in this begottenness, that he was begotten of the Father. He is not less than, like, created, but he is begotten of his Father. This is why he is able to be the Son of the Most High. This is all terminology of Jesus' deity. Look at Isaiah 7 with me. This is a prophecy of Jesus' arrival. In Isaiah 7, 13 and 14, Isaiah said, Hear now, O house of David, there's that language again. It is, not, is it not enough that you try the patience of humans? Will you now try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Why is this an important term, Emmanuel? It means God with us. Not a, a, 
an exalted human with us, not a little bit, you know, an angel with us or a little bit better than all of the rest of humanity with us, but God himself is coming to dwell among us. This is his deity. In John chapter 5, Jesus is um, in a discussion, an argument with the religious leaders because he's just healed somebody on the Sabbath and they don't like it because he's breaking Sabbath tradition and Sabbath law. And they're trying to figure out if he has the authority to break the rules or not. The only one who really does is God because God set the rules in place and we're just trying to honor God. And anybody that interrupts these rules really better be God or else he's, he's violating the commands of God. And listen to this in verse 17 of chapter five. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is working, is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more, this is the Pharisees, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. There's that begottenness that he's not less than God, but he is God. This is eventually what they killed him for. They called, it, they called it blasphemy, claiming to be God when you're not really God. But but what they didn't understand is that Jesus really was God. It wasn't blasphemy. This is the charge they brought against him. But when Jesus resurrected up out of the grave after three days, he made a massive declaration. Everything I just said I would do, I can do. I have the power and the capacity and the will to do. They thought he didn't have what it took, but he demonstrated his power by getting up out of that grave that he actually was God. So, so they wrongly accused him. We say this all the time at Easter. They, they falsely accused him. They accused him of blasphemy. That wasn't at all blasphemy because Jesus is God. He can do what God does. He, he can he can take that Sabbath law that from their eyes he was breaking and show them a new way, a better way, his way. And I think that that is so important for us to see his deity. Let's look at Colossians 1. I had you turn there like 20 minutes ago. And uh, finally, Richie, look at verse 15. This is Paul um, describing the deity of Jesus. And I think he does such an amazing job of just capturing the essence, the nature of who Jesus is. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God. If you ever wondered what God's like, look at Jesus. If you ever wondered what God likes and doesn't like, what his heart is like, his attitude is like, look at Jesus. You ever wondered what love looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Why is firstborn important? It's a symbol. It's a picture of prominence. It's a symbol of blessing. It's a place of God's favor. He's the firstborn over all creation. It's also a place of authority. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. <laughs> For in him, I'm just going to read that again because like, we got to soak in this a little bit this morning. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow. Through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Think of that. He's actually holding 
this life together, this universe together, your body together. He's, he's holding all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church. It speaks to his authority. He is the author, the perfecter of this faith. He is the one that gets to decide what his church is like, what we believe, where we go, what we do. He is in charge. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy or preeminence. He is the authority not only in, in, in life, but also in resurrection from the dead. He, he paved the way for what rever, resurrection looks like for each one of us. For God was pleased, I love this, to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of it. I think this... This needs to strike us. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's a description of the deity of Jesus. I think it's important this morning we recognize that each of us has a tendency to minimize who Jesus really is. Usually it's fairly innocent. It's not like, you know what, I'm going to try to today make Jesus less than God. It, it's more like um, life just kind of rolls over us and we find ourselves busy, cluttered, um, unintentional. I know for me, I find myself exerting my desires and my purposes and my will. My busyness is about my achievement and my importance and my success. Pretty soon I've edged God out of almost every area of my life and found myself completely self-reliant and self-dependent and self-motivated and, and, and really not a Christian at all, if I'm honest. Because a Christian is somebody that's recognized that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. He is in charge, in control. He is God. What he says goes. And it's really easy for that to not become true in each of our lives. And I was thinking about it this morning as I was praying through this. It's, it is very innocent. I think in, in, in word and in confession, we would say, I believe that Jesus is God. But in function, many of us live as though he has no authority whatsoever in our lives. I joked about it earlier, like I, I like the idea of him being my savior and my friend, but please don't tell me what to do, Jesus. I got a life to live. I'm already busy enough. I can't add any more religious clutter to this crazy life I've got going on. And if we're not careful, we completely edge God out of our lives in the nature, the character, the essence of who Jesus is becomes powerless in our lives. Many of us have found our religion very empty lately. Emotions, trying to just kind of fake it till we make it, feel like we should be here on a Sunday. I need to go to small group. I'm, I'm trying my best to get up early and spend some time in prayer. But, but if we're honest, it feels kind of lifeless and powerless. And, and, and I want to actually do something about that, not only for me, but for all of us. I, I want to know Jesus and encounter him fully and powerfully, not, not minimize his essence and his deity and his character, but actually experience the fullness of who he is. It really is much more of an encounter than it is a knowledge, wouldn't you say? 
to actually enter into the presence of the living God. And I'd hate for us to be a people that claim we know Jesus and believe in Jesus, but functionally, he's not really God in our lives. He has no authority. He has, he has no ability to call the shots, lead our lives, transform our attitudes, our view of people. We're just kind of stuck in our ways doing our thing. I feel like this is an opportunity for God to correct that, to change that, to, to revitalize that. If your soul feels empty and weary, like this is a chance to actually encounter God for who he really is in the person of Jesus. So hopefully there's an element of hunger inside you that says, I want to encounter Jesus more powerfully. Anybody in the room? Just a, just an, maybe you're not, I don't even know fully what you're talking about, Richie, but I do want to encounter Jesus more fully, more powerfully. And if you do, I think that that's what this conversation is about for me is, okay, to, to really encounter Jesus more powerfully, I need to understand a, a few truths, probably grasp a couple of truths about his deity. If you're taking notes today and you're going, all right, how do I do this? What does this look like, Richie? First is this, if, if you are gonna encounter Jesus more powerfully, you gotta grasp this truth of his capacity. Write that word, those words down, his capacity. His capacity is... is found in his deity. And I think the enormity of his capacity escapes us quite often and is so powerful when we are face to face with his capacity, who he really is and the power, the capabilities that he really has. Think of the terms most high, all supremacy, all authority. I mean, think of these terms that say, no, he is, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He holds all things together. He is the firstborn over creation, the firstborn from the dead. He, he is the one that has preeminence. He is the one that has all capacity. We were reading it earlier in John chapter one that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And as God was speaking creation into existence, it was Jesus. The word was Jesus that was being spoken into the emptiness and from the emptiness was coming light, was coming mountains, was coming sea, right? Was coming humanity by, by the spoken word of Jesus. Like, think about this capacity. He's not, he's not lightweight. <laughs> he's not little. The capacity of who he is is so central to his deity. It's so central for us to understand. Look at Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. <laughs> By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry hosts, by the breath of his mouth. I think that's much effort for God just to breathe some stars into existence. I breathe a lot of things, but definitely not stars. <laughs> He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. <laughs> Just think of his capacity. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth, listen, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. What is this? It's a, it's a reverence 
Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is his capacity. I think it's so so practical when you just begin to reflect on his capacity because so easily does God become, Jesus become just a, a religious trinket in our crazy little world that we're trying to sprinkle like magic pixie dust on our lives and asking him to kind of fix things up a little bit. But when you step back and you're like, God, Jesus, you are, your word actually spoke this whole universe into existence. Your breath flung the stars in the sky. Who am I to make you so small? Who am I to allow you to become just an inconvenience to my life that I've got going on? His capacity. I don't know about you, but it just brings an awe and a humility to my heart to go, man, how have I missed these encounters with God? How have I allowed my religion to become so lifeless and my, my, my holiday season to become so just frenetic and busy and trying to live out this dream that I've dreamt up for my life when the God of the universe is saying, I came for you. This capacity should humble us. I think that's part of this process. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, the author writes, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I love this. His capacity is not limited. His kingdom will last forever. His rule and his reign will be the only rule and reign. I know it seems like there's a lot of rules and reigns going on across the world right now and a lot of conflict between all those rulers and all that authority, but his kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. His kingdom is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says, then let us be thankful. I love this. Let us be thankful because that's the kingdom we're receiving. Not one that's going to crumble at the next election cycle, right? We're not receiving a kingdom that is going to crumble in the midst of another war. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably. He has an expectation on our worship. Is it acceptable in his sight? Not in your sight, but in his sight. This is what he says. With reverence and awe. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. That means to be in his presence means we will be consumed unless he chooses to allow us into his presence, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to earth to die for our sins and make it possible for us to enter into his presence, not apprehensively, but boldly, courageously, knowing that he loves us and accepts us as his children. Not, not tippy-toeing our way in, but the, our God, this consuming fire says, I've chosen you. 
and I have died for you and I am here to save you and rescue you and make you right so you can come forever into my presence and spend eternity with me. Our God is a consuming fire. God, give us for allowing you to be anything less in our own hearts, and our own minds. God, forgive us for getting so caught up in so many things that pale in comparison to who you really are. Our God is a consuming fire. So let's worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. See, when you come to face his capacity, you're drawn to this place of fear. And it's a healthy fear, not a, a terrified afraid of him, it's a fear of how amazing he is, how overwhelming he is, how powerful he is, what his capacity really is. And it should cause an awe in your soul, a wonder, a sense of, of reverence. This is why for generations, churches were built as these spectacles, big cathedrals, they were built in reverence for God. They were built as acts of worship to God. This is why we stand and sing. This is why we kneel before him. This is why our hearts are contrite when we approach him. Because of his capacity that he is God. And that he would allow us to come into his presence. That he would allow us to walk into his throne room of grace in our time of need, in our time of trouble. Oh, Thank you, God. Let us worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. I said there was two truths to grasp. I got to one so far, all right? One is this, his capacity. The other truth that you got to grasp is his will. If you are writing down notes, his capacity is one, his will is number two. And this is why this is so important. If you're going to Jesus more powerfully, you've got to grasp this truth of his will. When, when he is God, here's what that means, is that his will is the only will that matters in this entire universe. The creator, the sustainer of all things, what his plan is, what his purpose is, what his desire is, what he is working out, where he is going, what he is doing, is the will, the purpose, the plan that matters. Here's the, the trick for many of us is to recognize this and then begin to surrender to this. And it is a lifelong process of surrender. It's not a like one and done, I got it, I did that, that one time. Absolutely not, because you're gonna wake up tomorrow and it's tomorrow. And your sinful nature is going to try to lure you back into self-worship, right? And self-reliance and, and doing what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And oftentimes we find ourselves caught up in in traps and entangled in snares that say, you know what? I need to find a purpose for my life. I need to figure out what my potential is and what success looks like for me. One of the most important disciplines in the New Testament is the disciples of Jesus recognizing what Jesus says, that he is the vine and we are the branches. He is the vine and we are the branches. He's like, if you, if you abide in me and I and you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. His will, his desire, 
His purpose, His longing, His plans are the most preeminent plans of this universe. And so then we get to make a decision daily over and over and over and over again. Am I going to exert my will or am I going to submit to his will? This is how practical it gets. Just recognizing every time my will is competing with his. and Finding those places where I, I need to surrender once again. It could be as innocent as wanting to have the perfect family gathering at Thanksgiving. What do you want, God? How do you want me to to be today? Who do you want me to love? I know as a leader in the church, this is one of the most difficult things for me is because church has gotten, through the last century, I would say, it's gotten so programmed and in a box of this is what it takes, this is what it looks like, this is what we do. For me to intentionally step back from everything I've been trained in and everything I know that works in the church world and just humbly seek the face of God and say, God, what do you want your church to be? Where do you want us to go? How do you want us to be? How, how God, should we be leading? Where should we be going? What do you want your church to be about? Man, it's so, so critical for every single one of us just to recognize those places of self-reliance in our heart, self-drivenness. I'm not against being driven. Man, when God gives you direction, go with all your heart. Go with all your strength. But don't skip the seeking and just assume the direction. Bring everything we have when he directs those steps. Bring all the excellence, all the honor, all the professionalism, all the urgency. But man, don't skip the seeking because his will is the most preeminent will of this universe. It's his capacity and his will. And when you embrace those two truths, I really believe that you can encounter Jesus in a much more powerful, powerful way. It's like shock paddles to your religion. (laughs) God, I need you. I don't want to just go through motions. I want to encounter you for who you really are. See, this season is a season to know Jesus, to know his capacity, to know that he can come through on every one of his promises that he ever promised for all of time. Anything that he ever said he would do, he has done, will do. He is faithful, always has been, always will be, and we can trust that because of his capacity.